0: this is uh physical two, unit seven part two pediatric breathing you guys ready okay so um, a lot of the subject matter we've already been through last semester so I'm gonna go through it fairly fast I'm gonna go into verbal tachycardia mode so we can get through it but uh, don't hesitate to stop me, ask a question, ask me to re-explain something, slow down because we have gone through it. But some of it, but um, you know, going through it quickly, it's always good refresher, right? I just uh, so um, when it comes to uh, cardiac arrest, uh, when most adults go into cardiac arrest, it's a, what they call a cardiac event. So a sudden arrhythmic death or a heart attack followed by an arrhythmic death. Uh, and just remember the heart attack is not synonymous with death people have heart attacks all the time and survive the risk of sudden death with heart attack is only 5% right that's why I'm still alive I'm good and even then I was pretty confident I'd stay alive anyway so if I was 5% who died they had DFib pads on me they'd shock me right away it's about a 98% chance they'd get me back so no worries uh, kids In contrast, uh, when kids go into cardiac arrest, it's almost always respiratory in origin. So it's some kind of respiratory distress that leads to hypoxia that leads to cardiac arrest. And so the focus in kids is a little less on defibrillation and more on ventilation and oxygenation. We're still gonna get the defib on quickly, but we're gonna focus on oxygenation and ventilation with kids uh, a little more rapidly, right? Because it's usually hypoxic that that leads to cardiac arrest. Um, And uh, so breathing, um, we have, as we talked about in the last presentation, they have small airways that easily obstruct. Um, Their ribs are more horizontal and they have weak accessory muscles, so consequently they have poor respiratory reserve, meaning that, unlike adults, if they get into distress, they tire more quickly, they get fatigued. And when you fatigue, you can't breathe, right? So so there's risk that they deteriorate to the point where they need positive pressure ventilation a little more quickly than adults. Um, Part of the other trouble too is when they get into distress, they tend to swallow air. And uh, air gets caught in the gut because it can't get back up through that cardiac sphincter and it um, when the stomach inflates it presses up against the hemi diaphragms and that uh, diminishes the th- size of the thorax basically limits ventilation so so in kids bottom line is anticipate the need for ventilation you gotta oxygenate quickly PPV quickly if they're altered and have three word dyspnea or they're apneic So fast, bre- fast breathing is normal in kids. Neonates breathe at about 50 breaths a minute. Um, breathing at normal rates, 10 to 20 in a child, might indicate the child's in failure, so respiratory failure, so that's a concern. What is respiratory failure exactly? Well, um, in, in the emergency department, they would define it uh, with blood gases. Uh, um, in the field, we define it with basically mental status and um, how much difficulty they have speaking, essentially, if they're, if they're at a verbal stage. But uh, once they're fatigued, they're usually either in impending respiratory failure or in respiratory failure, and we need to intervene with, with uh, oxygenation and ventilation. So uh, auscultation, we do that any time. I don't worry about a kid who's crying, I'm still gonna auscultate. Um, they have higher metabolic demand, therefore higher demand for O2. And a uh, higher metabolic rate and lower reserve capacity, um, a high sensitivity to airway and breathing problems, and so oxygenation and ventilation is really key, and early intervention is key. Um, you look at a kid like this, a um, kid who's fatigued is, is in respiratory failure or impending respiratory failure. What, what is it about this kid that concerns you? Tell me, describe the things that you see on him that bother you, Brock. Please, chest is kind of like in. Yeah, his chest is caved in, yeah. Yeah, and they get that seesaw breathing where their chest is so pliable it caves in when they're in respiratory distress. And you see their abdomen go up and their chest cave in, and then their chest come out and their abdomen go down. What else, Matt? He really He does look really sleepy. His eyes are droopy, kind of hanging low. Doesn't look good. Anything else? I think those are the two key things <coughs> that sunken chest and the droopy eyes, he looks really fatigued. And looks like he's getting nebulized salbutamol, just handheld, right? Someone's not using a mask, maybe the mask distressed him. I would use the mask with a nebulizer chamber, um, but this is a case where they're, you know, probably just giving him constant nebulous epinephrine, or not epinephrine, but mostly salbutamol, most likely salbutamol, and uh, just blow by so it doesn't distress the kid. So, aspiration, we're moving on topics here. Um, Aspiration etiology, this is uh, inhalation of either oropharyngeal or gastric contents into the apices of the lungs. Um, uh, They may present with altered mental status. Uh, um, Sorry, but, sorry. Um, Aspiration may be the result of uh, previous brain damage from stroke or head injury and um, uh, strokes do occur in kids, small children sometimes, um, and um, so if they've had previous head injury or stroke, they may have an inability to protect their own airway, loss of gag reflex, and so they're high risk of aspiration when they're eating. Yeah. When you say sometimes, how often are you talking? Is that something you think we're see? Strokes. Uh, it's a rare event in kids, okay. so you know you might see one in a lifetime, two in a lifetime. Um, I had an eight-year-old with a stroke. Uh, I know John Lee has seen many kids with strokes, uh, but he specializes in that area, so it's a pretty rare occurrence. And um, uh, So if they've had a previous problem with stroke or head injury, they may have a loss of gag reflex, and that puts them at risk, right? So the sequela is, um, uh, with aspirations, and we sometimes see these kids, um, not, not just uh, previous strokes or head injuries, but kids with cerebral palsy um, may have um, trouble protecting their airway and problems with spasticity. And over time, they develop pneumonitis and pneumonias, recurring lung infections, and um, uh, that can be a recurring, ongoing problem with them. So aspiration, if, if this was something that happened recently, uh, you know, less than an hour, they may be in distress, maybe dyspneic, tachypneic, tachycardic. Um, if, they've, if this happened quite some time ago and it's been brewing as a pneumonitis or pneumonia, they may have a, they may have a fever, they may be cyanosed. Um, if you hear crackles, it'll likely be in the, the ape- apices of the lungs rather than uh, uh, basilar. They may have diminished breath sounds. They, uh, if they've got a, an infection brewing in their lungs, they may have a pleural friction rub. Remember, when you listen to the lungs, if you, it sounds like hair rubbing against hair. That's uh, pleural friction rub. And don't, I can hear it even with my short hair. Um, asthma, so we're just moving quickly from topic to topic. Asthma, uh, we talked about this last year. And um, In clinical, when you're, um, Hanging out with the respiratory therapies, if you can, if you can re- recite this off, you'll make a really strong impression. I think I said this before. Um, asthma is a triad of chronic airway inflammation, hyperreactivity, and bronchospasm. Those are the three key uh, sort of pathophysiological um, consequences of, of asthma. Um, they also have typically excess mucus production. And um, asthma exacerbations may occur as a result of, uh, exercise, infection, cold or heat, smoke, pollen, atmospheric pollutants, uh, medication, non-compliance, those are considered extrinsic causes of of asthma exacerbation. The intrinsic ones are just essentially uh, non-immunologic, so the reactions occur without the above precipitants, so occur for no apparent reason. So presentation, the triad of um, clinical presentation for asthma is dyspnea, cough, and wheezing. Again, if you remember, um, uh, if you remember uh, this stuff here, uh, inflammation, hyperreactivity, and bronchospasm, and you remember these three, dyspnea, cough, and wheezing, you make a very good impression. Typically, you're gonna be tachypneic, tachycardic, uh, they may have some chest tightness, that might even seem angina-like, but we don't treat it like cardiac ischemia. Uh, Excessory muscle use, nasal flaring, uh, air trapping, um, so they may have uh, diminished, markedly diminished air entry in severe cases like status asthmaticus, ch- chest hyperinflation. And uh, tell me again what pulses paradoxes is. You're doing your primary survey, you're palpating the radial pulse, and what do you feel? Yeah, absent pulse, a really weak pulse on inspiration and stronger pulse on exhalation, that's pulses paradoxus. And it's just from changes in intrathoracic pressure, right, from the bronchospasm, so. Uh, do we tell anyone the patient has pulses paradoxus? Nope. Do I even write it down? Probably not. It's just a mental note thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so status asthmaticus. This is life threatening. This is a severe, severe asthma. This is the patient who is going to uh, is, is going to require PPV, right? This is the patient who is likely to have uh, three to four word dyspnea, altered mental status, and um, uh, uh, short of status asthmaticus, we'll typically treat with salbutamol, uh, typically nebulized, unless they're febrile, in which case we give um, MDI an aerochamber. Uh, but if they're in status asthmaticus, the first thing we do is PPV. The second thing we do is give them intramuscular epinephrine. So the only time we give IM epinephrine is for uh, severe asthma. Okay? Uh, so altered LOA, dysmia uh, this is acute exacerbation it's unresponsive to initial treatments of bronchodilators. typically status asthmaticus you'll see in non-compliant teenagers and non-compliant uh, asthmatics in their early 20s they're not taking their meds they're typically on three or more inhalers they've typically been admitted to the emergency department before they may have even been admitted to the icu all of those things are Big red flags: three or more meds, admitted to ER, admitted to the ICU. Even a bigger red flag, and uh, they get into real serious trouble. Yeah. So I know sometimes with mental uh, mental illness, there's no compliance with medication because of the mental illness. Why would someone who has asthma not want to take the medication? Are there side effects that we should know about, or anything? no? In fact, you know, uh, I've. I personally never had an experience where mental illness was an issue. Uh, It's always been um, young teenagers, typically, well, 16 to 20, typically male, typically just, I think, and I'm purely speculating here, hate the fact that they're asthmatic, hate taking this BS meds, don't need this crap, don't like this crap, don't wanna live, don't give a crap about anything, uh, it's It's that sort of thing it's usually uh, attitudinal and uh, and then they just get to the point where you know they they get in such severe distress and they end up having to call um, so they'll present one of two ways in terms of uh, clinical presentation when you're the just persistent wheeze with retractions diffuse bilateral wheezing uh, or they may actually present with a silent chest but um, if you ever hear a call for a patient in severe respiratory distress and you hear that they've been vomiting, uh, vomiting usually means they're really profoundly hypoxic, and that really scares me. So when I hear that, I think, oh, this is bad. Right? So you go in sort of the prepared for the worst. And when you auscultate the chest, you may hear no air entry at all, and that's a bad sign. Um, there's probably a minimal amount of air going, going in there, but that's a patient who's pre-cardiac arrest. That's a patient who's gonna crash very, very quickly. So so one medic goes to PPV and oxygenation, the other medic draws up the epinephrine and gives it IM, as long as there are no contraindications, right? Because if you don't intervene with that guy quickly, they're gonna die, right? And they're usually dying when the 911 call happens. And if they s- they're still alive by the time you get there, you're lucky, you might have a few minutes left um, but you've got to intervene quickly, efficiently, and stay calm. because you don't want to, uh, you don't want your anxiety and your excitement to push them over the edge, right? Because if if they get the idea from the look on your face and the speed with which you're working that they're going to die, that might just be enough to push them over the edge. So um, I've said this before, slow is fast. And when I say slow, I mean, you know, how do I describe slow? Slow means, Hi, right, let me just have a listen to your chest. Can you get the BVM out? While well, you BVM, I'm going to get the epinephrine over here. Okay, we're going to give you some epinephrine. To, this is what I mean by slow, right? It's not, <gasps> listen to the chest. Oh, my God, I don't hear anything. Oh, get the, get that, get that, you know, get it. too much excitement for me for Friday afternoon so uh, lethargy is a bad sign fatigue is a bad sign those are all bad signs uh, and uh, this could lead to uh, pneumothorax I had a guy who uh, he had uh, he had silent chest and um, uh, I contacted the base hospital physician we actually orders to needle both sides of his chest didn't help um, what ended up helping was just uh, continuous, um, was one epinephrine and two continuous nebulized um, salbutamol eventually. But a needle more were necessary because we just had no injury bilaterally and we didn't know whether he'd blown a pneumo as well. But uh, just so you know. Uh, CF, um, I have never had a patient with CF. Chances of you getting a patient with CF, fairly low, because. Uh, patients with cystic fibrosis typically uh, self-treat, and they typically get themselves to uh, the family doc or the urgent care center or the hospital uh, before they need to call 911. Um, but that doesn't mean—it's not to say that you couldn't get a patient with uh, cystic fibrosis. Um, this kind of a call would worry me c- quite a bit because um, uh, they get into uh, distress, and there's not a whole lot we can do except supportive care. But. Um, so CF is a, is a genetic disorder where there's a abnormal uh, chloride transport um, channels on the surface of epithelial cells and exocrine glands, and the consequence is they develop these very thick, sticky secretions in their lungs and, uh, and they have trouble clearing them. So you know they take medications to decrease the viscosity of those uh, of that mucus and um, uh, uh, the etiology, so again, I've uh, normally thickened tenacious secretions. I think of tenacious secretions. I think of this guy, um, I, uh, I was observing with a paramedic crew in Vancouver, this guy committed suicide, and he had this um, string of saliva going down from his mouth to his his leg, and it was just an intact string of saliva, kind of like, you know, pizza hot out of the oven where the cheese just... You keep pulling it and it won't snap. That's what I think of as tenacious. Um, They obstruct their um, bronchi and bronchioles. They get air trapping, they get stagnant mucus, which leads to recurring infections. Uh, Other organs can be affected like the pancreas, the intestines, happens about one every 3,500 births, so it's fairly uncommon. And um, uh, oftentimes, um, uh, the thing that prompts mom to take the kid to hospital is the kid notices uh, the skin is salty. Um, on the infinite birth um, I don't know how they detect that um, exactly if maybe there's like you can feel it on the skin or whether mom's licking the kids back or something uh, <laughs> or maybe you can smell it I don't know uh, but the kids you know typically dyspneic maybe chronic cough with recurring lung infections and uh, may have thick secretions um, febrile respiratory illness so we get a lot of calls for uh, patients positive for fry um, and, and usually FRIE spelled F-R-I-E, E being for enteric I meaning they've got some gastro thing going on with a fever but um, uh, the most common respiratory um, febrile respiratory illnesses uh, in kids uh, is bronchiolitis and pneumonia and bronchiolitis is fairly common some parents think the kid has asthma but the kids just develop a they get a respiratory syncytial virus infection and they get this, uh, a bit of bronchospasm, and they, they go on uh, salbutamol and a flow vent, and they're fine after that, mm-hmm. but um, uh, asthma doesn't typically get diagnosed so much later. My, c- my daughter had bronchiolitis as a child, and I remember giving her um, salbutamol, and I was quite surprised at how fast her heart rate started to pump. Her f- heart started to pump once I gave her salbutamol. Her heart went rate, rate went from like 100 to 140. I was like, wow, this stuff is potent. So, the etiology, uh, it's inflammation of the bronchi and bronchioles can lead to uh, necrosis. That's pretty serious. Most commonly, the result of uh, respiratory syncytial virus and uh, transmitted by oral droplets. So, you know, coughing, common in two to 12 months. Presentation, typically uh, recent fever, cold, dyspnea, wheezing. And here's the nice thing. It doesn't matter whether it's asthma or COPD or bronchiolitis, anything that wheezes gets albutamol simple plain and simple they got wheeze give them salbutamol it's beautiful it's beautiful drug Uh, they may have some crackles they may have chest retractions Uh, pneumonias uh, typically um, bacterial but uh, can be viral or fungus Um, actually uh, in adults pneumonias are more often viral and um, uh, common Inc- ones include uh, streptococcus pneumoniae, he- Haemophilus influenza, which is a virus, uh, mycoplasma pneumoniae, and aspiration. Uh, and um, with pneumonias, if there's a wheeze, we treat with salbutamol. Uh, otherwise, if they're desaturated, we treat it with oxygen. So there's an inflammatory process, there may be some, if eva- there's gonna be um, alveolar exudate, that means pus in the, in the lungs and the presentation typically fever, dysthmia, tachypnea, uh, cough, with or without sputum, so we need to ask if they, you know, uh, we want to know if they have a productive cough, which means when you cough, do you cough anything up, um, and if they can tell you, you want to know what does it look like, is it is it clear, is it yellow, is it greenish, is it brownish, is it is there any blood in it, um, does it smell bad? Um, Tachycardia. They may have pleuritic chest pain, which is a sharp chest pain. Uh, they may be diaphoretic, fatigued, some malaise. And auscultation um, with pneumonias, sometimes you'll hear bronchovascular sounds, meaning um, you know the kind of sound you hear if you auscultate the trachea, a loud sound in an area where it should be quiet. So um, often pneumonias um, develop in the perihyla region, where the uh, trachea bifurcates in the right left main stem. You get in there or sometimes in the base of the lungs. So you're auscultating the chest and it's quiet and then you just land over an area where there's some consolidation, a big wad of pus, and it sounds very loud. Um, that's uh, I hear that more often in lung cancer, but you hear it sometimes with pneumonias. Uh, but you could also auscultate the chest of a patient with pneumonia and never hear bronchovesicular sounds because you just didn't hit on the right spot and you're not going to spend an hour auscultating and 463 areas of lung but uh, I don't know if you saw it on um, social media but there's a new device out it's a stethoscope connected to this device and it detects pneumonia with an 87% specificity anyone see that no I should put it on the uh, Ontario paramedic student thing I thought that was very cool it's just a uh, looks like it connects to an old-style phone just a stethoscope and you just have to auscultate in one spot and apparently it detects pneumonia Quite a high degree of accuracy, very cool. Uh, they may have a pleural friction rub. Um, submersion injuries, let's talk about drowning. So interesting, um, most paramedics, most tests that you encounter, maybe even the provincial test, I don't know, you still use old terminology. You use drowning and near drowning. Near drowning if they're still alive, drowning if they're dead. But the World Health Organization uh, proposed some new terminology um, because different countries use different terminology and they propose new terminology to try to get everyone on the same page. So so, uh, epidemiologically, we could all track the same things. And so uh, what they define drowning is a a process of experiencing respiratory impairment from submersion or immersion in liquid. Drowning outcomes are classified as death. uh, So drowning with death or drowning with morbidity and no mortality or drowning survival. Let me just uh, bring up a different. <coughs> so this was adapted in 2002 by the World Congress, but it hasn't gained real widespread recognition. So, so there's drowning with death, there's drowning with morbidity. Drowning with morbidity means they survive, their heart's beating, but maybe they sustain some hypoxic brain damage. And then there's uh, drowning with survival. Um, uh, so that would be Drowning with no morbidity. So most commonly happens in um, kids under the age of five. The peak is one to two years. Um, uh, Drowning is the leading cause of death, in those uh, teen boys, fairly common. Seizures, Um, sometimes a kid who's having a very first seizure will drown. (coughs) And um, 90% happen in fresh water. Over 50% in pools, commonly in the home, the neighbor, relatives' pool, and uh, but can happen in bathtubs, hot tubs, toilets, buckets. So all it takes, for example, you know, you might think like, how does a kid drown in a toilet? But if you put your head in a toilet and you aspirate the water, it can cause such intense laryngospasm that you obstruct your airway essentially and lose consciousness very quickly. Um, so, it can happen. Uh, so, management um, if, uh, oh, this is sort of the end of submersion. Uh, all I'm going to say about submersion is um, uh, there may be some aspiration of fluid with, with a drowning, um, in which case there's a problem, twofold problem. One, there's fluid in the lungs from drowning, and two, the fluid in the lungs. Washes out the surfactant, so there's a um, there's going to be some degree of atelectasis, right? So, in other words, the kid's in distress, and you have to provide PPV. There may be some airway resistance. It may be more difficult to squeeze the bag to get air into the lungs, and. Uh, um, in hospital, what they'll do is they'll ventilate someone who's a drowning with uh, positive end expiratory pressure (PEEP), right? To try to keep the alveoli open, to increase functional residual capacity, to increase the surface area across which oxygen can, can diffuse. Um, not few few paramedic services carry PEEP valves, and uh, unfortunately, but um, um, that's what you're gonna have to do. I remember. Uh, One drowning I'll never forget. We had this uh, this guy who uh, was an oddest suicide. He he uh, opened up a uh, a maintenance cover, what we used to call a manhole, or man, or what do you call those things? It was a manhole. Um, Now it's just a person hole, uh, a maintenance cover, and. uh, uh, he'd worked in these things before he knew this one had a high level of water and he jumped in it to kill himself and uh, his dad uh, contacted the local paramedics uh, they were having trouble getting this guy out they called us we landed uh, on the road nearby and we pulled this guy out he was vital signs absent we <coughs> ran the arrest It got his heart beating again he remained unconscious and I intubated him and we transported him to the hospital and I put him on a positive end expiratory tri- tri- pressure. We were ventilating him, and um, then we... Uh, I was having a great deal of difficulty getting air into his tube, so we decided to uh, disconnect the BBM and suction him. We disconnected the BBM. The water came out of the endotracheal tube like a fountain, like a, like a water tap turned on. It's just poured out. And we turned him on his side, and the water just poured out of the tube. Uh, and after about uh, 30 seconds of this, we turned it back on its back and went to BVM and again. It was a little easier to BVM. <laughs> but that's uh, what it happened was a lot of. Like, um, remember they used to say, uh, put them on a barrel and roll them to get the f- fluid out of their lungs? I don't know if you've ever heard that before. We don't do any of that stuff anymore, but, um, but if you apply peep to these guys and they've aspirated water, eventually it comes out. So. Um, Uh, And I've had uh, actually several drownings where they've been resuscitated by a family member or friends and neighbors on the scene. And when we got there, they were awake and talking with just a little bit of respiratory distress and maybe some crackles in their lungs, like their apices, and they've been fine. We just transport them and oxygenate them if you need to. But um, uh, if you get a drowning um, and you do CPR right away, Uh, not uncommon to get a pulse back to save that person's life because oftentimes these people have healthy, otherwise healthy hearts and they just need oxygenation, ventilation and artificial circulation Um, so management overall for dyspnea and shortness of breath position of comfort, O2 therapy, PRN PPV, PRN um, uh, if they've got signs for that, salbutamol sorry I'm going to try to squeeze this in it's a sympathomimetic, meaning it, it, it uh, mimics um, you know epinephrine and norepinephrine uh, in some ways. It's a bronchodilator. It's predominantly a beta-2 agonist, so it stimulates beta-2 receptors in the lungs. That gives you bronchodilation. Uh, but it also um, stimulates beta-1 receptors in the heart, which gives you an increase in heart rate. So the more salbutamol you give, the more beta-1 effects um, and repeated doses can give you a pretty good tachycardia. Um, if they're afebrile, we usually give them a nebulizer just because it frees your hands up for doing other things. If they're febrile, then we give them um, MDI and a chamber like this. And the reason we do that because if they've got if they're febrile and they've got an infection and you know pathogens are coming out of their lungs, those pathogens are hitchhiking on those droplets that are floating in the air that you and I are inhaling in the back of the ambulance. So we, we don't want to do that, right? So if they're febrile, we use um, MDI meter dose inhaler and this aero chamber here instead. Um, uh, What I would do is go over the bronchoconstriction medical directive on your own and uh, just read up on the doses and the indications and uh, I'll leave it at that. Um, Let me see what what we got left here. Oh, just a couple of slides. Good, I'm sorry to push you right to the end. Believe me, I wanna get out of here too. I'm gonna go home and try to make myself pretty for the wedding this weekend, you know, so. That, that's a lot to do for me. I look in the mirror and go, yeah, looks okay. <coughs> <laughs> Never changes. Um, uh, so crackles, underlying cause in children, pneumonia, aspiration, and uh, we treat with oxygen and PPV, PRN, severe asthma, We've already talked about. Um, just remember, with asthma, if if you've got a status asthmaticus patient, um, what's the rate of PPV with a status asthmaticus? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, probably every ten seconds, so about six breaths a minute. Yeah, so about six breaths a minute, like really slow, adults or kids. S- kids maybe eight, but. Yeah, about six breaths a minute. So unusually slow, painfully slow, because they need that exhalation. They got gas trapping, and they've got to get that exhalation time. And uh, I am epinephrine. Uh, febrile respiratory illness. We've already talked about, um, and this I think we can skip through. It's all repetition of what we've talked about so far. Just know that um, in terms of ECG, we monitor ECG in anyone who's in respiratory distress or has chest pain, anyone with any kind of serious illness. Um, If they're hypoxic, uh, it may cause cardiac irritability. So you may see uh, premature beats uh, on the ECG and if we treat them with oxygenation and ventilation, you might see those ectopic beats disappear. So that's uh, one of the signs that oxygenation and ventilation is helping. Any questions? Re-breathing in kids? Okay. We'll do a review on Tuesday.